The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so I'm gonna need, I'm gonna need you to help me out a little bit. So I want you to think about what's the best gift you've ever given to someone? Not the best gift you got, the best gift you've ever given someone. So who's, who's got one? Yeah. Uh, a sculpture that my mother really wanted for Christmas one year and had it delivered and it was a mystery and it was a wonderful, joyful experience for the whole family. The sculpture for your mom that she really wanted. That's a, that's a great gift. What was the sculpture of? Do you mind me asking? Uh, it, it, uh, a Native American mother holding a baby. Oh, that's, that's great. That's cute. My grandmother had a picture in her house of uh, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy with Jesus in the middle, <laughs> which I call like the Holy Trinity of Southern black people. Like <laughs> others, the best gift you've ever given someone. Yeah. A bunny? You gave a bunny to your best friend in third grade, and I bet her parents loved you. <laughs> it was like, I'm out of here. When, when our kids were little, we had other friends who had very young kids, and for every birthday, like first birthday, second birthday, I would find the loudest, most annoying toy that I could possibly give them, and just get, because it, it made my devious heart smile to know that my friends were gonna be tortured by their gifts. Handmade blanket? Yeah, that is a labor of love. My oldest daughter turned 18 this last week and my mother made for her a knitted blanket. And it's just like, you hardly know it. There's, there's so much time and attention given. You hardly know what to do. It's like, do I use it? Do I just like put it on display? Whatever we do, we just keep the dog away from it. Like that's the main thing. <laughs> yeah. That's a great gift to give. I ask because I am a terrible gift giver. And everyone who has done like premarital counseling with me here, like one of the things I talk with you about, you'll remember this if I've done your premarital counseling, is that you are not marrying a mind reader. And so if you want something, you need to say it. And it is not romantic to spend your life getting gifts that you don't want. Like, just say what it is. And I say that mostly for me because I'm so bad at giving gifts. And I grew up with a family that's bad at giving gifts. So when I was maybe sixth grade, my brother and I were struggling with what we were gonna give my mom for Christmas. And so we thought like, what does a mom want? And for some reason, the answer to that question was pots and pans. Because every woman wants to have more pots and pans, like as a Christmas gift. And I promise you, I have given some gifts that people have opened and were disappointed in but none as disappointing as this gift. 
And it's not just me. Years later, like when I was in college, my brother, I have an older brother, he's three years older than I am, gave my dad for Christmas this really nice toolkit. And my dad is the least handy person on the planet. Like he really, he actually said, like, what am I supposed to do with this? But now looking back, like I, I see the calculus because my brother is very much into tools. Matter of fact, he sells tools. And I think that he was just giving him something off the back of the truck. I can't promise that, but that's my, that's my instinct. And one of the traits that all of us have is some kind of orientation around gifts and like gifts that we like to give and gifts that we like to get. And for me, I like useful gifts. Like preferably if I can immediately use them. Like I want things I can do stuff with. So when I was uh, 14, there were these things that played music called CDs. And back in those days, like no one, no one dropped an album because if you dropped an album, you might break it. Like we just had the little CD. And I wanted a CD player very badly for my fort, the year I was 14 for Christmas. And like we were moving from tapes and CDs were amazing because you didn't have to fast forward or rewind. You could just go to the one song or the two songs you wanted. You could like skip around. Like this was, this was all new because all I'd had up to that point was like a Walkman that like just clipped on. And so my mother for Christmas gave me a CD player. Now, some of you will remember back in those days, the early days of CD player, like they were enormous. Like it was this big black thing. You had to hook up wires to your speakers and through your stereo. And I was so excited this Christmas morning when I opened up the box and there was this CD player in the box. And I was excited because I love music. Our whole family was really into music. But the problem was my mom, probably at a great expense to her, bought me this CD player but no one bought me any CDs. So I dutifully, you know, went to my room, set up my CD player, like got it all plugged in, ready to go. And for the rest of the day, just like looked at it. And that night my mom comes into the room and we're talking, this is like the most pitiful thing. And she's talking to me about the, CD player. And I said, yeah, I'm real excited. And then I said, but nobody got me any CDs. And it was, it was whiny and pitiful and pathetic. Like if one of my children sounded that whiny, I would just like walk out of the room. Like there is no way to modulate the human voice to make a whine sound acceptable. Like, but that's where I was at the moment. And I knew like the next day, I mean, this was back, this was a long time ago. It's like, you couldn't just go to a store. There was no store that was gonna be open on Christmas day to get a CD and I had money and I could go the next day. All it was gonna, it was gonna be like 12 hour wait, but I just couldn't use it right then. 
And for me, if you can't use it, then why bother having it? Like, I, I, I don't get into things that aren't useful. And no matter how beautiful they are, no matter how meaningful they are, like I have a very low metric personally, like for sentimentality. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just me. And I think all of this is important because the last two and a half months, like we have been as a community talking about enchantment. And this simple idea that God has filled the world with God's presence, that, that there is beauty in all of these spaces that we've overlooked it, that there's meaning inside of ourselves, and, and that other people add to that beauty, create space for God's enchanted world, that we live in a space that really is filled with wonder. And so much of that is about coming to a place where you are aware of it, where you notice it. But you know the same thing about life that I know. Life is hard. Like, it is difficult. And there are a thousand pains and traumas. And when you are in the middle of it, who cares about wonder? So I have really close ties to a church north of town here. And, and they have a pastor on staff. She's in her early 30s. She just had a baby during COVID. She's got another child a couple of years older than the baby she just had. A month ago, her husband dies. Just out of the blue, unexpected, leaving her a single mom with two young kids to raise for the rest of her life. And some of you, I know for a fact, have been in that space where you've lost something great, something really meaningful to you, maybe a person, and you look around and you wonder, how in the world does the rest of the world just keep going on? Because this was every, this was my whole world. And when you're in that kind of space, a fair question to ask when someone is talking about enchantment, is what good is it? How useful is that in a world where there's just rampant injustice, where people we love suffer, in a world where racial strife and economic pains when you're in a place where you have lost your job or you have seen the dismissal of your future, what good is it? Does any of it make any real world difference 
I'm the kind of person, and maybe you are too, that just asks, what is the point of beauty when you've hit rock bottom? But when I'm in those kinds of times, I remind myself of something that's very core to my existence and to your existence. That whatever I'm experiencing, I am not the first person in the world to experience this. Yes, my mom thinks I'm unique, but I'm really not. I'm not one of a kind. This isn't a special circumstance. People have been here before, and what did they do? How did they respond? And and one of the people, when you open the scriptures, that has this continual experience of the life of enchantment is a man named Moses. Now, if you are unlike my children and and think the Prince of Egypt is like one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, if, if you don't remember all of that, let me remind you of Moses' story. Moses is born a Hebrew. And the Hebrews had ended up in Egypt because Joseph had been there and he brought his family and Joseph saved Egypt from famine. But what happens over time is what always happens. Like people forget. And there arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And so he looks around and he says, the Hebrews are becoming too many. So the only way we're gonna stop this is to enslave them. And that's exactly what he does. So the Hebrews become slaves in Egypt. And then they still keep becoming too many. And so Moses is born and at the time of Moses, the Pharaoh decides what we really need to do is all of the boys, we just kill him. So Moses is born into a genocide. But his mom sees this coming and she keeps him hidden. And when he gets too old to stay hidden, she takes him one day and hides him among reeds in the Nile River. Well, there along the Nile River comes the Pharaoh's daughter to take a bath. And, and Pharaoh's, um, Moses' older sister is watching this whole thing go down. She's kind of spying out the scene. And Pharaoh's daughter finds baby Moses in a basket in the reeds. And the little sister steps up and says, hey, would you like me to go find one of the Hebrew women who's nursing to take care of him? And that's exactly what she does. She goes, she finds Moses' mother, comes back to take care of him. She says, why don't you come and live with me in Pharaoh's house and you can take care of your own child in Pharaoh's house. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house as the quasi adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. But when he gets older, he realizes he's not an Egyptian, he's a Hebrew. And he looks out and sees how his people have been treated and are being treated, and in a fit of rage, he kills an Egyptian guard. And he thinks he got away with it. Until later, 
when he gets mad again and someone says, are you going to kill me like you killed the guard? And suddenly, Moses has to escape Egypt. And he runs out into the desert. He's so exhausted, he collapses at a well. And as he's sitting there at the well, seven sisters come to draw water from the well. But while they're doing this, there are some shepherds who are also there. And the shepherds start bullying the seven sisters. And Moses defends them. One thing leads to another. Moses marries one of the seven sisters named Zipporah, which turns out to be really lucky because he is in the middle of the desert with no one and no money and no resources. So he gets a job working for his father-in-law, a man named Jethro. And he's tending sheep in the desert for his father-in-law. And he has this experience where he sees, off in the distance, a burning bush, which is not that crazy of a sight, except that the bush was burning, but it wasn't burning up. And so he goes to check out, and this is how Exodus tells that story. Moses says, why is this bush not burning up? I need to move a little closer to get a better look at this amazing sight. When the eternal one saw Moses approach the burning bush to observe it more closely, he called out to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, I'm right here. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals and stand barefoot on the ground in my presence for this ground is holy ground. And I am the true God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A feeling of dread and awe rushed over Moses. He did his, he hid his face because he was afraid he might catch a glimpse of the true God. This ecclesia is an enchanted experience. And Moses comes face to face with a manifestation of the true God. He sees a burning bush and he knows that this is God. He he hides his face because he's worried that it really, really, really is God. And, And some of us have had those kind of experiences where we've encountered God in a way that we knew exactly what it was that we couldn't talk ourselves out of it. No one else could talk us out of it. We know what this is. And when we talk about enchanted experiences and seeing the world as an enchanted place, there is a danger that we're talking about these kinds of experiences and these kind of experiences only because every time someone in the scriptures has an enchanted encounter with God, there's more to the story. This is what God says next to Moses. He says, I have seen how my people in Egypt are being mistreated. I have heard their groaning when 
the slave drivers torment and harass them, for I know well their suffering. I have come to rescue them from the oppression of the Egyptians, to lead them from that land where they are slaves, and to give them a good land, a wide open space flowing with milk and honey. The land is currently inhabited by Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The plea of Israel's children has come before me, and I have observed the cruel treatment they have suffered by Egyptian hands. So go. I am sending you back to Egypt as my messenger to the Pharaoh. I want you to gather my people, the children of Israel, and bring them out of Egypt. Now, there are a lot of people, a lot of people I know, a lot of people you know, some who would say that they are followers of Jesus and some who would say that they aren't, who have been waiting for, praying for, hoping for, wishing for an experience of God. And and the way we say that, the way we talk about that is, well, if, if God would just show up and do something or if God would make himself obvious, if it was clear that it was God, then I might, then I would, then I could. And whenever I hear that, I wanna say, are you sure? Because enchanted encounters, Enchanted encounters are invitations to sacrificial love. That's the so what. That's why it matters. If you think that you can have an enchanted encounter that doesn't lead to sacrificial love, if you've had an enchanted encounter that didn't lead to sacrificial love, it might have just been a pretty sunset. Because this is what happens to humans. When people encounter God, when people embrace the enchantment, the wonder of God, we are always being invited to love more deeply. That's the point. So Moses resists at first, and he ends up going back to Egypt. And and you have heard about the 10 plagues and crossing the sea and all of that, and it doesn't take very long until Moses who should be the hero in the eyes of the Hebrews, starts hearing all of their complaints. And they're not complaining about God. They're complaining about Moses. And so later in the story, by the time we get to Numbers 11, Moses is fed up. He's freed these people at the hand of God. He's given his life to leading them. He's left the place that he's lived for the last 40 years. He doesn't know any of these people. He didn't grow up with any of them. And now they're complaining to him. So this is what Moses says to God. He says, why are you so hard on me? I am your devoted servant. Why don't you look on me with affection? Why do I have the great burden of these spiteful people? Did I conceive them, bear them, and give them birth? 
Why should you tell me to carry them, as a nanny does, some suckling infant, into the land that you swore to their ancestors? And now, where am I supposed to find meat to feed this crowd, crying out that I give them food to eat? I simply cannot keep carrying them along. They are way too heavy. If you plan to treat me like this, then just kill me now. If you care about me at all, just put me out of my misery so I do not have to live in this distress. Just kill me now. Do you, do you know who else says things like, just kill me now? Parents of little kids. <laughs> if it's going to be like this, just kill me now. Do you know who else says this? Parents of teenagers. If it's going to be like this, just kill me now. Do you know who else says this? Parents of adult children. If it's going to be this way, just kill me now. And who else? Couples who are dating. Couples who are newly married. Couples who have been together a long time. People with roommates. People with jobs. Any person that has another person on any level because this is part of sacrificial love. The releasing, sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly, of what we wish the world were for the betterment of other people. And this happens Every time we experience God, we are being invited to love more sacrificially. That's the point. And that's what happens to everyone in Scripture. There's a great story, one of my favorites in Acts 10 about Peter. Peter, who has been raised a Jew, he doesn't like Gentiles and all their nasty Gentile habits. He's got his own thing. And he thinks like a lot of people did in the first century, that Christianity is really just a form of Judaism, reformed Judaism, and it's still not for Gentiles. And God tells him, hey, I want you to go to this Gentile's house. His name is Cornelius. And I want you to bear witness to who God is. And Peter doesn't want to go because he thinks he knows what love is. And so God sends him a dream. He has an enchanted encounter. And in this dream, God shows him all of the things that he's created, all the things God's created. And he says, Peter, it's not to you to call something clean or unclean. And Peter goes. He experiences God and that experience of God leads him to a deepening, expanding vision of love. It happens to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He thinks he knows exactly who God is and what God wants. And he has an experience of God that leads him to expanding and deepening and widening sacrificial love. As a matter of fact, at the end of Paul's experience with God, do you know what God tells him at the end of this enchanted encounter? 
let me show you how much you will suffer. That's the point. If a mountaintop experience leads you to appreciate mountaintop experiences, then you, then we have missed the point because the mountaintop experiences are invitation to join God's mission. So one of my favorite prophets is Isaiah. And do you want to know what happens to Isaiah when he sees all the God that he can handle seeing? This is what happens in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty. He saw the Lord. And the hem of his robe, the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of wonder. The pivots of the threshold shook at the voices of those who called and the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I send me. Church, the end of enchantment is eternal love. And to see God, to experience God is an invitation to love more deeply. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.